It's Kincaid and Breckenridge. Thanks for listening to the program today, and thanks for uh, taking part in the Highlights podcast. Uh, a couple of real interesting uh, conversations today. Uh, we delved into the world of gene editing and the so-called CRISPR technology and what it might entail in terms of medical benefits, but also some of the ethical pitfalls that this technology creates. We also talked to Andrew Leach, who was the chair of that uh, climate change panel that the Alberta government uh, put together. Um, we talked to him about what Alberta's ambitions are and how they fit into the bigger picture, which is the whole world picture on addressing climate change. You can listen to us, Roger and Rob, weekday mornings from 9.30 to 12.30 on News Talk 770. Hey, welcome back. I'm Roger. Guys, Rob, we wish you a a Merry Christmas or whatever. (laughs) Okay, sure. Uh, Only December 9th, but I guess it's never too soon to say it. No, no, of course. There's poinsettias everywhere here, poisonous flowers adorn the offices. And we're going to talk about solar flares later in this half hour. Um, you know, something that we should be maybe a little bit concerned about, not overly obsessive about, but something we, we should be aware of. But uh, some new research suggesting that the potential anyway uh, does exist for what are known as super flares. So that that sounds scary. Um, we'll talk about that later on. But uh, let's talk about gene editing. And, you know, th- this is pretty fascinating stuff. And, and there's this technology known as CRISPR. Now, it's not the place where you keep your vegetables. Let me try to, if I can get this right here, it's actually, which is short for CRISPR-Cas9, which in turn is short for Clustered Regularly Interspaced Short Palindromic Repeats Associated Protein 9. Yeah, I know. Um, (laughs) But what this is, this is a breakthrough in uh, uh, what you call gene editing right now. And we're going to learn a little bit more about it uh, with our guest. So let, let's bring him into the program now. This is Richard Gold, a professor in the Faculty of Law at McGill University, an associate member in the McGill Department of Human Genetics. Welcome to the program. Well, thank you very much. So I, I don't know where to start with this interview, Rob, because this is like uh, a, a, br- a brave new world to me. It seems to be a bit of a new frontier. So, I mean, Richard, maybe you can tell us exactly what we're talking about here. It's a new tool, uh, principally used right now in research. So basically what scientists want to do is they want to go into your genome, which is all the genes in the cell, you know, in mm-hmm. any cell, and edit it, just like you would edit on a word processor. So let's say you wrote the word THB and you meant T-H-E, you can go in, take out the B, and stick in an E. So it's really that type of technology, but obviously uh, at uh, you know, using biology to do it. But it's correcting the letters uh, in the human genome, and you do that to get rid of a gene that you don't want, to put in a gene that you do want, uh, and, and the like. So it's, it's basically uh, a very precise way or a fairly precise way of editing the human genome so that we get the genes we want, which then expresses proteins and hopefully avoids certain diseases like Tay-Sachs or right. Huntington's. Now, well, yeah, and Huntington's is one example there. There's yeah. a piece in the Globe and Mail that you know says, imagine being able to remove a mutation from an embryo so a child would not develop Huntington's or modifying a gene so someone with HIV would not develop AIDS or altering the genes of pigs so they could grow human organs that we right. could use for transplant. So, you know, it, we're not far off from that, are we? Well, we're not far off, but we're not there. Uh, you know, we've we've talked about we've been talking about gene editing for a very long time. We've had technology to do this just 
far less precisely. There's another technology before it still exists, still being used, called zinc fingers, which is even stranger sounding than CRISPR-Cas9. Um, it just wasn't as exact. So we've had technologies to edit for a long time, and we've been talking about this for a long time. The Royal Commission on Reproductive Technology, uh, way back in the 1990s, was talking about editing uh, human embryos. They didn't have the technology then, but they were looking forward to it. So we've been talking about this for a long time, and we're not there yet. And we uh, still have a considerable way to go before you see this being used routinely in humans. I think you're more likely to see it in plants or animals first. Well, even that, that raises ethical issues, potentially. There, there was uh, the paper just published talking about, you know, the, the concept of designer animals and, and what this technology could allow. Right. But we already do that. Right? We do all kinds of manipulation of animals. We have genetically modified pigs that emit less methane, and we have uh, genetically modified uh, plants. Most of the soya that we uh, take in has been genetically modified. We have BT corn and so on. So all of these have undergone some genetic modifications, but the technology used then was basically you throw the new DNA and you hope it lands at the right place. What this new technology allows us to do is be much more precise about it, uh, so that's a good thing because, you know, less likely to have bad things happen. Um, and it will obviously open doors to doing things we couldn't do before because we weren't precise enough. But this is not a completely new thing. It's the evolution over 20-some years of technology, and it still has a way to go uh, in the human side. On the animal side, it's less regulated. Um, you know, if it doesn't work, you pull the plant, you don't sell it, it doesn't get marketed. Um, so, yes, there are obviously dangers from any technology, but it's not going to be on your market shelves tomorrow, and it certainly won't be in babies uh, in the near future. What? <laughs> so we, we got these two streams that are running parallel, right? There's the technology, and then there's the ethics, right? So there's yep. the science component, and then there's the legal component, I guess. And, yep. you know, we understand that we're talking to Richard Gold, a professor in the Faculty of Law at McGill. But which one uh, is running, you know, ahead of the other? Are we trying to figure out what the ethical pitfalls are before we go ahead and start exploring the technology aspect of it? Or do we sort of have to wait to see what the developments are before we can apply some ethical standard to it? That's an excellent question, and I think it depends on who you're speaking to. You're speaking to me. I happen to think that the ethics is running ahead of our knowledge of the applications, but other people would say, well, you know, if we don't actually deal with the ethics up front and set out some boundaries, somebody's going to cross it, and we won't know it. It'll be too late to shut the door. So I, I think the real answer is they have to go in parallel, but we shouldn't overestimate the uh, you know the immediacy of this technology being around the corner. We shouldn't uh, you know worry that something's going to happen tomorrow. It's going to take time. Most of the applications, uh, especially if you're changing an embryo, uh, are quite a distance away uh, and very limited in scope. It'll be for these ge- single gene diseases like Tay-Sachs and Huntington's, but it's not for heart disease. It's not going to be for cancer. Uh, HIV is more complicated. Yes, you can uh, change a, a gene to make it harder to be infected, but there's a consequence to it, which means you're more easily infected by another uh, virus. 
Um, so it's not likely this is going to be coming out shortly. But I think it's useful to engage the public and educate them. So I think shows like this are a great way to get people engaged with the debate, hopefully learn a little bit about the science, think about what kind of risks we're willing to take in the future. Uh, but I don't think we have an immediate worry. It's interesting. The, the, um, the, the statement following this international summit, and it talks about kind of where we're at, where we need to go. And in terms of on the, on the regulatory side, it says, well, each nation ultimately has the authority to regulate activities under its jurisdiction. The human genome is shared among all nations, speaking to the need to have international norms. Now, mm-hmm. there, there are not a lot of areas where we do, but th- does that seem achievable? I think uh, among scientists it is, especially at this stage when there's no clear application, at least at, for embryos. I think you know, going in and f- having a, an adult or you know, a live child and going in and changing some of their cells maybe a little bit sooner. Um, but since the applications are, are fairly far away and we're mostly dealing with research, I think it's fairly easy to come up with basic norms. I think when you're going to get closer to delivering something there, you may see that different countries take different routes. And we've seen this with IVF and uh, you know, surrogacy and all kinds of other technological advances that raise significant uh, ethical issues. And different countries go different ways because of their culture, their religion, and so on. So I don't necessarily believe that we'll come out with you know, a, a clear norm that applies everywhere in the same way. But I think we can talk about the dangers and certain things that we don't want. We can talk about sharing knowledge about risks, uh, sharing tools to diminish risk, all those kind of things I think the scientific community can do. They did so in the 1970s when genetic technology first came about. They actually imposed a moratorium on themselves. So it wasn't an official one. It was the scientific community. And that worked to develop knowledge to show us that, in fact, genetic modification of plants was and bacteria were, was actually safe. Um, so I, I think at some level you can get an agreement that here are the dangers, but each country is going to go its own own way in the end. Along those lines, I mean, we've mentioned a few examples, uh, pigs, for example, that could uh, grow human organs for transplant and whatnot. And when we talk about genetically modifying um, plants, often it's in response to certain conditions. And and so there are countries, for example, uh, that would say, hey, can you genetically modify a banana for us? Give us more vitamin A. That would help with our uh, child uh, mortality rates. Do, do we see the same sort of drive then in in this research? Do we see some countries uh, or the research responding to the needs of, of certain countries? At this stage, we're we're pretty much early stage. So I think to a certain degree, we're just using this technology to do what we've already been doing. It's just a the next best tool that we have to make the types of gen- genetic modifications that we already are doing. And so there are regulatory processes in different countries. But in in, in terms of, uh, of the human, I think there's just a big question mark over what can be done, when it can be done, how we're going to regulate it. Because we, we've got two levels here, and, and this, this uh, consensus statement talks about it, because we've got the... The, the editing of, of genes, or the editing of cells, rather, where, where it's not traits that would be passed on. And, mm-hmm. and there seems to be an embrace of that, that, that there's some real potential there. But on, on the question of, I guess, what's known as, as germline gene mm-hmm. editing, where, where we're changing the genes that, that, that could be passed on, that there, there's a real reluctance to, to go down that path right now, to say it would be irresponsible to proceed with germline editing in humans because there are too many unknowns. 
That's right, but that's today, and that's because even though this is a much more precise technology than the previous technology, it's not perfect. We know that even though you can put your gene fairly confidently where you want it, there'll be other modifications somewhere else in the genome, and we don't know what the consequences are either for the embryo or its progeny. So the consensus was, given the state of knowledge, it would be irresponsible to do uh, that in humans. Now, the research that could help us figure out what the dangers are and how to control for it, and this is advancing. Even midway through the summit last week, there was a paper that came out that said, well, we have much better precision even than we had a couple of years ago. Um, as that advances, I think that the consensus will change. So this wasn't, uh, this wasn't a ban. This wasn't a moratorium. It just said, given that we don't know a lot, this is the time for research. That's the proper field for, for this technology, at least for embryos. In five years, the situation may change, and at that point, it may be completely appropriate to do this. Even so, uh, there's a great talk by Eric Lander, who's one of the, the leaders in this field. He said, look, you know, if you wanted to deal with something like cancer or heart disease or even intelligence or height, there are thousands of genes involved. And going and modifying a thousand genes raises all kinds of complications and may give rise to all kinds of uh, problems. Each one is pretty small in terms of its contribution. So we're nowhere close to being able to do that and regulate that. And so, again, it would be irresponsible to try that in a human. But to try and use this technology to find out more about disease, about how cancer proceeds, about how heart disease proceeds, about why people may be shorter than others, that is all useful research. So the scientists are trying to differentiate between using this technology to advance knowledge, even though it may not be used to transform our own genes, but it may lead to drugs and better targets for drugs in the human body, uh, from using this therapeutically, especially in embryo, um, going into an individual who's, for example, uh, suffering from HIV-AIDS and you want to cure them, you know, doing this intervention may be worth the risk and it doesn't get passed down to their next generation, so that may be a more acceptable risk. We're not there yet, but that we're at least closer to that. I'm, I'm wondering, too, if, I mean, are there some controversial aspects of, of medical science that we see uh, a little bit of right now that might be sort of amplified in magnitude if this technology that we're discussing here today becomes more ubiquitous? Well, I think the chief one is around reproductive technologies. Countries value embryos differently. Uh, there are, as I said, cultural aspects, cultural questions, certainly religious aspects. Even at the summit last week, there were some individuals coming from a, Europe with a more uh, traditional Catholic background that were, if you listen to them carefully, were arguing against even things like IVF, saying, well, there are alternatives like adoption. That's probably not even true. But, um, you know, they're, they're, it's feeding into those basic human questions about who can reproduce, what can reproduce, is it legitimate for a person to want a genetically related child, should they be able to improve that child, because all of us obviously want our kids to do well, what are the limits of that? So I think it's feeding into that anxiety on treating an individual through, so the other aspect that we talked about, 
called somatic cells, where, you know, the non-reproducing cells, there was far less discussion and controversy. Um, there, we've done some what's called uh, gene therapy. We've not regulated it very well. We had one person who died not using this technology, but another one. So I think we have to be very careful about that. But that's the way science should, you know, does and should normally proceed. But if there, there's financial benefit in... in developing and offering this technology i mean uh, you know what about companies that, that might be operating uh, outside of those ethical boundaries well they may but we're not there yet there's just nothing to sell uh, most of this work is being financed by uh, the public through uh, the national institutes of health in the united states through their equivalent agencies here in europe and around the world this is heavily subsidized by the taxpayer because we're at the very early stage of gaining knowledge. This is exactly where public money ought to go. There are some private firms that are on the periphery that are trying to develop you know, better tools or deliver products faster. So if I'm a researcher and I want to experiment with this, instead of creating it all by myself, I can go to a firm and buy it. But that's normal. We're not at the stage of having firms having a technology that can be introduced uh, on, a, on a mass market basis. Um, and without that, there's not going to be much market interest. So the companies are there on the periphery. They're waiting. And at some point, you're quite right. This could become a worry. But the technology has to mature substantially before we get there. Yeah. But at the same time, and you talk about how heavily subsidized by taxpayers this research is. I mean, it's only about 14 years ago, I guess, that George Bush said we can't publicly finance stem cell research anymore. Do we see similar hurdles ahead? Thankfully, not yet. Uh, I think that was an underlying fear at the summit. It wasn't explicitly discussed, but I think that was why the word banning or moratorium was not used, mm -hmm. because it was felt that that a decision by George uh, W. Bush really delayed a lot of uh, interesting research that you know, could eventually help us. So I think sci the scientific community was quite clear. We don't want that type of intervention, but we want scientists to take responsibility. But because we're dealing with reproductive technology and we are dealing with embryos, it's always um, subject to political whim. If you have a change of government in the United States with a very conserv socially conservative president coming in, you could see a repeat of, of that and a, a banning of certain uses of this technology outright, even if there's a benefit. All right, fascinating stuff. Professor Gold, thank you so much for making some time for us here today. My pleasure. We appreciate this. Uh, Richard Gold, he's a professor in the faculty of law at McGill University of Montreal. He's also an associate member of the McGill Department of Human Genetics, uh, was one of the participants at this international summit on, on human gene editing. And I, I'd say he's, he's, um, less alarmed about it than, than some are. Mm -hmm. Uh, because there is a lot of division in the scientific community about where we're at, what we need to do right now, and how worried we should be. And of course, there's so much potential from this, too. Yeah, he's an academic, though. He struck me as being quite um, aware and and interested in the concerns of various, uh, you know, cultural groups and different nations around the world, how they would perceive this. I wonder if it's playing God. It's the question that I'll ponder while we go into a commercial break here on Kincaid and Breckenridge, News Talk 770. I alluded to a, a published paper about designer animals. It's in the American Journal of Bioethics. Uh, and it's, <laughs> I love the, the title, uh, CRISPR Critters and CRISPR Cracks. 
But here's one line in this. Uh, mm. Listen to this. This is fascinating. It says, considering what humans have done in the last 10,000 years to wolves and their descendants and continue to do as in the Labradoodle, why should we not expect dwarf element, uh, elephants, giant guinea pigs, or genetically tame tigers? Or dare we wonder the billionaire who decides to give his 12-year-old daughter a real unicorn for her birthday? Wow. Now, maybe that's, as, you know, as, as Richard Gold said, we're just kind of at the onset of this technology. But if we imagine a world where that's possible, is, is that something we'd be okay with? Oh, yeah. I think a unicorn Kentucky Derby is something that everybody would like to see. Ooh, boy. Yeah. See, now I've got the wheels spinning. But it's true, right, that we have been genetically uh, engineering dogs for a very long time. Uh, I think pretty much. I mean, all dog species are basically products of of human tinkering. Yeah. Same with turkeys. I mean, like, the, the, isn't it something like uh, near one hundred percent of commercially raised turkeys in the United States are bred through artificial insemination because they've been bred to the point where they can no longer procreate naturally. They just got too much meat on the on the breast. <laughs> So they can't get near enough to each other to make, make a little love. Um, but it's, you know, it's something that, that I think that when we see the convenience to us, then we love the technology. But when there's the uncertainty, like right when you're not tucking into that $38 turkey uh, with your whole family around, when you can't see the convenience, then you become quite suspicious of, of the technology. That's why I asked the question about playing God before the break. Do we see this as playing God? And if you're somebody who believes in God as I do, then do you see this as, well, you know, these are products of God, the scientists, who figured this out and are now able to change it and get rid of some certain diseases. Is that playing God or is that being a good citizen of Earth, what God created? Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think that gets thrown around too often. <laughs> I think so, Playing too. God. Yeah. Um, you know, if you mean you're going to raise someone from the dead... Or bend the laws of physics. Uh, create a universe. Yeah, that's that's playing God, <laughs> I guess. But no, you're right. I mean, it's it's a question of what's within the realm of of what's scientifically possible or plausible, anyway. So yeah, no, I don't I don't I don't see that as as playing God. I don't know that that should be a term we use to decide whether something's appropriate. I think we got better ways of of judging what's what's ethical. Yeah, I don't know why why the partition is at is at this is at your skin, right? I mean, you. We can do anything in the world that's a technological advancement, and it makes the world a better place. But if you do that within your body, then for some reason that's where that's where the line is drawn. Oh no no no! Don't mess with that. That's sacred. That's it's unethical to remove the genes that would uh, cause certain diseases. I don't get it. Yeah, that doesn't seem unethical at all. I think that would be a, a, an enormous advancement in 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 human health and, and human achievement. I mean, the, the problem is, though, once you get to a world where you can erase certain genetic traits, how far do you take that? Uh, and, you know, then you start getting into the, the realm of uh, hair color or eye color or yeah, why not? Why not? Or, I mean, we dye our hair anyway. And if you want to have a team of basketball players, what's wrong with that? Well, you know, I mean, that's that's... That's fine. Maybe that would be better. Maybe it would be better if we could engineer humans to be taller and stronger and healthier. Mm. Right. Maybe the plant would yeah. benefit from that. Um, but then you, what about um, what about being gay? Is that genetic at some level? Are you, would you have some organization that's uh, devoted to to finding that gene and saying, aha, now we can parents, you can you can edit that out of your embryo. Yeah. And I think that. I, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, 
there's 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 two interesting takes on that because if you're a parent and you said I'd like to have a heterosexual child then um I guess that's your prerogative but then on the other side of that when we heard Madonna say she wants to have a gay child and we're sort of sitting here going oh that's wonderfully accepting but isn't it kind of one and the same we're talking about the same thing I would agree anyway we're going to get into some other science after uh, the news to 11:30 we're going to talk about solar flares one that could come to earth and completely destroy humankind as we know it or at least our electric grids this is Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770 You know you can call at 974-TALK. Text us to 770-770. Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. Hey, welcome back. Kincaid and Breckenridge Show. Sometimes, should I read this text message that somebody sent us in error? Because it's kind of funny. <laughs> I saw that. Yeah, like we did nothing to deserve this, but somebody texted to say, I had a good female friend in high school back in 77. No one gave her a second look. She went on to become Playmate of the Year in 1980. And then later texted, oh, sorry, wrong station. And I thought to myself, was it? Was it the wrong station? <laughs> we appreciate it. Yeah. It's a good story. And And by the way, random text messages are very, very delightful from time to time. So we encourage you to just, if you're thinking about something, fire one off to 770-770. Why not? All right. Well, um, let, let's circle back. We, we talked about uh, climate at the, the start of the program, or I guess weather in the form of, of Chinooks, and how alarmed Leonardo DiCaprio was uh, in experiencing one. But look, there, there's been a lot of serious conversation about climate policy, and we've just gone through this process where the government put together a climate panel. They came back with some recommendations, uh, which the government now moving on, including a, a, a carbon tax, phasing out of coal-generated power, etc., now, at the same time, there's been climate negotiations ongoing in Paris. Alberta's there, presumably, I guess, to to brag about what it is we're doing or to tell the world that here's what's happening in Alberta. We're taking action. But what's been happening in recent days is it seems as though the target's shifting. Now, there's been a lot of talk about a target of limiting warming to two degrees Celsius. That's what we should strive for, which I don't think Alberta's plan even necessarily does whether we could even do that but now all of a sudden canada and i guess by extension alberta are now on board with this this new target of 1.5 degrees which just seemed to kind of come out of nowhere and the question now what that's going to mean if we put policies in place to try to achieve that all right let's bring andrew leach into this conversation uh, who can help us better explain it the chair of the alberta climate change panel energy and environmental economist and associate professor and academic director of energy programs at the u of a school of business uh, andrew it's good to have you back on the show thanks for being here nice to be back talk to you well welcome to calgary by the way too I understand you're in our fair city today so we I appreciate that yeah down in the southeast right now fantastic all right so in terms of, let's talk about the work your panel did in, in drafting climate policy and the balance you were trying to strike and how much the two-degree target or even a 1.5-degree target factored into your work? I think most of what our, our work focused on was was two things. How, how do our policies stack up against other jurisdictions, what their policies are, without really worrying too much about what the targets are? And then asking, I think, a broader question of, are, are the policies that we're implementing compatible with goals like a two-degree Celsius goal? And, and I guess, uh, by extension, can we get there on our own, and what we concluded was that we, we could recommend a policy package that compared very favorably with BC, California, Ontario, Quebec, et cetera, and put Alberta on a, on a level playing field. But that going any further before anyone else uh, is taking comparable action 
would just lead to emissions getting shifted out of the province, not um, actually reduced. Right, and that's the issue, right? We're not talking about Alberta's climate change. We're talking about global climate change as far as this policy goes. But are you suggesting then that in, in crafting these policies, you have to make sure that you're actually reducing overall emissions, not just moving them to other jurisdictions? Uh, I think that's crucial. The, the terminology you see used uh, here and elsewhere is emissions leakage, which is essentially that, and Don Braid summarized it pretty well in the Herald this morning, to say that you're moving not just the emissions, but the economic activity yeah. associated with, with that to other jurisdictions under the guise of climate change policy, but really you're not going to have an effect on the global problem if that's what you're doing. And and that's the danger, because if if those those emissions are leaving Alberta and going somewhere else, We've just right. displaced them. We haven't reduced them. Exactly. Okay, so then how, how should how should a federal government then and, and provincial governments work in lockstep to ensure that that's not occurring? Well, I think, in, in a way, apologies, I've got a noisier spot than I thought here. Um, <laughs> the, the federal government globally is not that different from what Alberta looks at within Canada, that some jurisdictions look at Alberta and say, for example, you should reduce emissions by you know, particular percentage below 2005 levels, because that's what we've done. And that's what you, you see a lot globally. And Canada has taken a little bit of a different tack this time. Oh, no. This could be bad. Uh, Andrew, do we have it? We lost you for a second there. Oh, did you lose me there? Yeah, you said Canada's oh. taken a different tack globally. Yeah, so the, Canada's taken a different tack globally, which is to start talking a little bit more about the individual policies in place in different jurisdictions, which is encouraging. But then, uh, as you highlighted in your open, they're, they're also contributing to discussion, which is advancing this global level of ambition towards a one and a half degrees uh, Celsius, which is a, a much more stringent target than two degrees. So, presumably, if Canada is going to commit to that, that would mean going a lot further than what's already happening. Uh, it, it certainly would, would appear that way. One and a half degrees, if you look at models, what it would take, it's actually substantially more aggressive. It doesn't sound much more aggressive, but it's substantially more aggressive than two. We, the projections you'd need to have would be to see global emissions peak really within the next five years. And so there there aren't a lot of commitments anywhere in the world that would align with that level of stringency. So it's I, I think it's being put out there as an aspirational target, but uh, but there, there's no sense in which Canada or any of the other countries or many of the other countries present at that negotiation have policies that, that align with that target. Right. Now, we, the sense we got, and I guess we'll see how the new federal government proceeds, but the sense we got from them in, in terms of their promises on, on this file were, seemed to be to let the provinces lead. Your work on this file and, and what you were proposing for Alberta, did the, the panel approach it thinking that what the Alberta government does is going to be the extent of it, or we need to allow for the possibility that Ottawa is going to impose something above and beyond whatever we come up with? Um, well, I think the flavor of what we put forward was to say, uh, related to what you said, that Alberta could not move further unless other jurisdictions, competitors, and peers were moving further. But I think the the focus for us has to be, as, a, as our minister pointed out in, in Paris, I think rightly, that 
if you look across jurisdictions either globally or within Canada and say which of these jurisdictions will have a policy package that compares to what Alberta's put forward already, there are a whole lot of jurisdictions that would have to worry about doing more before we turn to ask for more from Alberta. But I just mean that we can say, okay, here's a $30 a ton carbon tax. Uh, what does industry make of that? And they can assess that on its merits. But if all of a sudden now we have to factor in an additional carbon tax that Ottawa is going to impose, that, that changes the equation. It, it Certainly it would if that were the, the suggestion. But I think, again, if you look... You have to look globally and, and say, what is it, how is this going to translate to policies globally? How is it going to translate to policies nationally? And we haven't seen a lot of indication for that yet. So I think it's probably premature to, to speculate on new federal carbon taxes or anything at that point. Okay, Andrew. Is there is there a point at which uh, this panel convened to, to try to stimulate uh, economic investment in, in, uh, in, in Alberta, or was this strictly about addressing emissions? So our climate change panel was really about addressing emissions, but in taking into account Alberta's economy and taking into account the sources of investment and such moving into the province. So it's not directly a, a stimulus package by any stretch of the imagination, but you have to have the um, you have to have your eye on Alberta's economy and, and craft policies to work for Alberta. Yeah, I mean it's clear that you sort of had a, you know a foot on the brakes a little bit because you, you can't. I mean as you discussed, talk about that emissions and then the economics uh, moving out of the province as well. But I just think that there's a lot of, of Albertans that look at the changes that they're facing right now and wonder mm-hmm. what the end game is. And I, I've said many times on this program, it's incumbent upon uh, leaders like Rachel Notley and Justin Trudeau to say, we're doing this so that we can derive this benefit. But it, yep. but it's I guess it's uh, uh, for your end and for the for the end of this panel, that, that benefit is merely the uh, meeting the target, the two degree target. Well, again, I don't think our our policies in particular meet the two degrees target. We talked about a lot of, of aspects within our report. For, first and foremost was uh, we talked a lot about Keystone XL and the market access issue that our province has. We're, we're worried a lot about what would happen with these coordinated global policies, but what's really affected our province most are discriminatory one-off policies, things like European Union oil sands policies, Keystone XL, these types of things, which have been directed at us, not directed globally, as, as you and others have pointed out frequently. And so that was part of the, the work. The second part was to look and say, as a resource owner, Albertans are, are now facing a world which is both moving on climate change and a wash in cheap fossil fuels. So both of those problems, in some cases, are, are counterproductive, but in in the broad strokes, what they say is there isn't going to be a market for expensive and emissions-intensive fossil fuels in the future. So there we talk about the need for uh, for technology to to help Alberta's resources remain competitive in that in that global market. And then of the one which you highlighted, saying that we can't go we can't go farther than our pure and competitor jurisdictions, or else we're just sacrificing our growth here. Right. Now you're at an event tonight in Calgary, and this this issue may come up tonight. But Andrew, this <laughs> carbon tax, might. this this carbon tax is is this a three billion dollar carbon tax, or is this a six billion dollar carbon tax? It's a good question. It really depends on on how you frame it and what you compare it to. So when Trevor Toom and others have characterized it as a $6 billion carbon tax, what they've imagined is a policy where the government would charge emitters for all of their emissions and then rebate them credits for some of the the emissions to offset the competitiveness impacts. What we'd imagined was something pretty comparable to the current system where some of you, the companies get some of their emissions for free and it's sort of an implied credit as opposed to a directly collected and rebated credit. 
Um, I guess the the comparable, if you if you're going to call it a six billion dollar carbon tax, you also have to credit the government with removing a four billion dollar carbon tax before imposing the six billion dollar one. If you are going to, and similarly, where um, people have talked about three billion dollars in output subsidies, you would also have to compare that to saying the new policy effectively removes four billion dollars worth of poorly designed output subsidies. Andrew, what's the status of the panel right now? Is it is it done? We're done. And then, is there any bringing you back uh, to to measure the targets and uh, measure the results? Um, well, you know, importantly, we didn't have targets, so it was really crucial for us was to have projections of what the policies would we thought the policies would accomplish. So we didn't set out and say this is the goal of the policy. We treated it more like a budget to say, with these policies in place, these are our best expectations of what will happen. And and so I think that's a real change from what you see in, in other locations. There's no expectation that we as a panel will be brought back, although one of our recommendations was uh, was certainly the ongoing uh, and frequent update and analysis of the policies for both what they're accomplishing and the economic uh, impacts of those policies. Like if in five years, and, and we look back at, at decisions made on, on pipelines, uh, is, is, that, is that a fair way to judge the success or, or failure of this policy? Uh, I think pipelines are, are certainly going to be part of it. Understanding that a lot has changed in the world oil market in addition to this, so that the call on new pipeline capacity is going to be much lower than it otherwise would have been. But I think the um, the way the discussions at, at the First Minister's level shake out on climate change policy is another place to look. Uh, and certainly domestically, the, the degree to which we can uh, render our resources lower cost, lower emissions over time, some of that's not going to happen in five years. But I think that's probably the biggest win. All right. Andrew, thanks so much for joining us here today. Appreciate it. Okay, thanks. Sorry about the background noise, guys. Oh, no, no, it's all good. And, uh, and enjoy our fair burg while you're here. I shall. Beware of Chinooks, though, Andrew. (laughs) I I don't think you have to worry about a Chinook. It's getting pretty dark out there. Hey, thanks, Andrew. Take care. Yeah, it is. Wow, what happened out there? Looking a little gloomy. Someone uh, texted to say by spring bang, it was uh, in a whiteout condition. Mm -hmm. I think we're about to get it, like right in the teeth, too. Uh, Why don't we do this? We'll take a little break, and uh, we'll come back when it's snowing like crazy. You're listening to Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. It's Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. I was just looking back in on uh, our Facebook page. Uh, the um, Leonardo DiCaprio uh, conversation. Um, people really like him. <laughs> what, <laughs> it's, about, uh, well, it's about 40 comments. I think it's got about 91 shares uh, at this point and about 80 likes. So some, some good response to that. People are having some fun with that today because I, I think, you know, as Andrew Leach demonstrated, there, there are serious, rational conversations we can have about what's happening, what we can do, what's realistic policy, the balance we need to strike in, in, in doing our part and protecting our economy. And then, and then you got, you know, statements like Leonardo DiCaprio's, who, who was, was convinced that the warm winter wind he experienced while in Calgary shooting a movie was first-hand experience, a first-hand brush with dangerous and frightening climate change. Yeah, and he's about to be proven wrong because it looks like any minute now it's going to start snowing, and um, that'll just prove that global warming is not something we need to be concerned about. It kind of looks like tornado weather. Maybe Sharknado uh, weather? Did you say sharknado? Snownado. <laughs> oh, no, we got to figure it out. Well, we'd have to have a blizzard with some sort of ferocious animal in it. 
Yeah, those are good too. Okay, we'll figure that out. And uh, Rob's going to tweet the video of the monkey seeing a magic trick, which is fantastic. I am going. It's great. You know, it's it, it, it's remarkable to me, and I think that when we talk about climate change, like we have to do something as a, as a people, right? As a race, is we have to make sure that we um, pay attention to and give proper uh, space to the rational debates, because like. For all Donald Trump is eating up the the news right now with all of his, you know, make sure the Muslims can't come into the country. Which, by the way, <clears throat> anyway, I'll get to that in a sec. Um, for all this Donald Trump stuff, right? He's the one who's getting all the airtime, and and I haven't heard what Marco Rubio's got to say. It seems that every time you get to hear from Carson or Rubio or uh, Bush or some of these other guys who want to have their name on the GOP ticket, it, they have to respond to stuff that Donald Trump said. And so, like, we're very, very fascinated, and we think that the best way to forward conversation is to do it irrationally and through misbehaving. Look at the taxi drivers in Toronto today. I mean, they're clogging up the streets of Toronto and pounding on the windows of of other cars. They're being absolute jerks, and they think for some reason that's how you forward the cause. But here's, here's a bit of a rational question. Can you imagine if you had an energy source that employed, I'm just using a round number here, right, employed all 100 people that need employment, and you didn't have to burn it, would you choose would you choose that or would you choose one that employed all 100 people that you did have to burn like don't be afraid to move past fossil fuels they're a wonderful thing in this day and age and i think that they're going to continue to be wonderful things for a day and age to come but eventually we'll get to something else and when we do get to that something else it won't be a bad thing well then that's always the problem remember when when david suzuki got everyone all riled up and he compared the oil sands to slavery yes right <laughs> do you want to hear that by the way i'll find that for you you got that there i think i got that close at hand you know and and i think had he had he done it more thoughtfully, because you know at the time the argument was, well, if we end slavery, it's going to hurt the economy in the South, and and it was more about a moral imperative that that's wrong and it's got to go. Mm-hmm. David Suzuki is trying to make a moral argument that that we need to get off fossil fuels, even if there is economic harm. There's a moral case that that prevails or should prevail. The problem is that slavery would be bad no matter what. The issue with fossil fuels is if all of a sudden we discovered, like let's say the, the, the climate skeptics and deniers say that, that it's all a hoax. Mm-hmm. If we discover that tomorrow, there would be no moral issue with fossil fuels. Fossil fuels themselves are not inherently bad. We've learned about a negative consequence of burning them, and we're trying to address them. The, the problem is that slavery is always bad, no matter what. You're damn right it is. You're damn right it is. Right, uh, but and, boy, you know, to compare it, it to slavery is You're not... damn right I do. You're damn right I do. <laughs> it's so emphatic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, well, let's squeeze in a couple calls. Yeah, sure, we got a few minutes left in the program here. Jim's uh, hanging on. Jim, thanks for calling in. You know, I, I, I like. thanks for taking my call. Yeah. You know, I think the thing is, is that global warming is a global issue, but when you start putting the word carbon tax, and I know these money, this money is just going to go to our own history of fiscal mismanagement. But really, for the most part, this whole thing needs to be taken a look at as a global. Deforestation is part of global warming. Methane gas, which we're producing more of than CO2, is part of global warming. Like, it's just, a, it's just this, this whole thing with a carbon tax and fossil fuels, yes, is a concern. But should, this, should the carbon credits that, 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 that would be could be used to say, okay, well, listen, Brazil, please don't cut down another acre of forest every second. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, we, it, it, yeah. you know we, we're just going CO2, CO2, fossil fuels, and we're, we're going down that road, but there's nothing being done. Okay, what are we going to do about methane? 
What are we going to do about the fact that deforestation of the rainforests? No, exactly. Yeah, no, it's, no. A, it's a good point you make, Jim. And, and by the way, you, you brought up carbon credits, and I can't let that one slide without pointing out that that is actually much closer to slavery than is the development of the oil sands. I'm not saying it's like slavery. You're damn right I'm not. But what I am saying is that uh, these nations that figured out that, hey, Leonardo DiCaprio wants to buy carbon credits, all we have to do is is appropriate the land from poor farmers and make them plant trees on their land when they would otherwise be using it to you know, grow food for their village. That's closer well, to slavery than I think digging up the oil you're, is. You're, and that's an excellent point. And it's the same thing with if you want to go, if you want to expand on that. Once you, once, once, once a, once a nation cries to raise out of poverty, uh, sawing off a rhino horn is, is a, is, is a way of life for some of these yeah, right. people. No, yeah, exactly. Jim, that's a great phone call. I think it highlights the scope of the problem, uh, that we're only just scraping the surface of Yeah, like here. a, like a, like a bitumen strip mine. Exactly. <laughs> All right. I guess that's it for us today. Yeah. Uh, Danielle Smith is uh, standing by. I think she's about to kick down the door, so we'll get out of her way. And, and with her comes a blizzard, like yeah. mad. Oh, here it is. Yeah. Here it is. All right. <laughs> we'll talk to you tomorrow morning. <laughs> King Gate and Breckenridge on News Talk 770.